Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, August 29th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. In today's text, the Lord instructs his people concerning the grain offerings that they can bring before him at the tent of meeting. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor Wright, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So we've we're one chapter into the book. We're reading chapter two today. Talk to us a little bit about the book of Leviticus. Make the case for this one. Why do we need to read this one as Christians? That's a good question. You know, it's one of those things that I think often, um, if you were to ask somebody, what's at the top of your list for Bible books to read? I wonder if what Leviticus would be on that list. I don't know. And it's not to diminish it at all, but I think it's like a lot of things. We have certain preconceived notions about it. Even if we've never read through the whole thing, or if we have and it's been a while, we just we kind of get this kind of stereotype in our mind, and we think, oh, Leviticus, that's just a lot of um, legislation about you know worship and things like that. And while that's not wrong, it's there's so much more to that. Um, I really appreciate um, Dr. John Kleinig's commentary on the book of Leviticus. It's it's a commentary that is is you can actually sit down and read it and kind of that an enjoyable thing. It's it's something that you're it's not even just a reference. You just can read that commentary. But he says um, kind of uh, in his introduction to the book of Leviticus that the voice of the Lord fills the pages of Leviticus, and that always strikes me every time I read that. And uh, that here when we're reading Leviticus, you know, one of the the five books of the Pentateuch that Moses wrote, the w- Lord's word is speaking through Moses teaching God's people in this book. And when you approach it from that perspective, um, it really starts to give kind of life to it, that you appreciate it, not just as some Old Testament book that with a lot of things that we don't really see in our lives today as Christians, but you see it in this instructive way and pointing us towards what we have in Christ. So there's this liturgical life then of God's people that Leviticus really reveals to us what is to be done, how it is to be done, where it is to be done. And through all of this, we see God is at work. And that's a key thing through through all of these different offerings, and we can get lost in all of the di- different details of it. But God is at work in this. And it's not just then a mere matter of legalism of, oh, you just must do these things, but they confess who God is, and they teach his people about him. They teach him about his word. Um, and we see then that God's holiness is just not some abstract concept, but that's experienced in real concrete ways, which are experienced by God's people as well. So that's kind of a, you know, it kind of brings, you know, new meaning or, or really kind of puts things into perspective as we get in the weeds of, of this book. I know we're only in chapter two today, but as we kind of think about all of that stuff, you know, to to think about um, 
teaching us about who God is, what he does, and that God's people benefit from this, I think really helps us. And then ultimately, then we see it pointing us to Jesus and it's fulfilled by Jesus. But, you know, um, even like jumping ahead, even to some of the, the stuff too, as we think about who we are, um, you know, the formula of Concord talks about the purpose of ceremonies, for instance, we'll just use that as an instance of, and even uh, the Oxford Confession and stuff too, our Lutheran Confessions talk about ceremonies they teach. And we see um, when you when you see God teaching his people about who they are and what he does and that it really sheds light on and you appreciate who you are um, being taught as a disciple, you know, in, in these these very real things that you see and experience before you. Yeah, I think yesterday's episode in which we introduced the whole book, we made the point on, on several occasions that it's important to keep the context of that God has just come down from Mount Sinai. He's dwelling there in the tent of meeting. And we've seen how God's holiness has interacted with a sinful people before, and it hasn't gone well for the sinful people. So how is it that God can dwell among his sinful people with all of his holiness? That's what he's giving them in the book of Leviticus. And as you said, when when we think about it that way, it's not just legalistic, but this is actually God at work. And that, I mean, that's something that, again, as we look at the details of the text, which are important, we want to keep that big picture in mind that this is God at work so that he can dwell among his people. And even yesterday, Dr. Hensley connected that even to the, the Garden of Eden. This is what God's been up to, trying to dwell among his people ever since they had sinned and, and they were forced out. Now he's always coming back, wanting to dwell among them. That's what the book of Leviticus is doing, and if we can keep that in mind in the midst of the details, I think it really does become a very, very beneficial book to us as Christians. That's a great point, uh, especially, too, like we think about, you know, when we talk about the divisions of the law of, like, the ceremonial and the political and the moral and those things like that, when we look at the a lot of these ceremonial laws, this is still the same God, though. This is the same God that we have, or the same God who was back in Eden. It's the same God who was at work, the same God who's merciful, the same God who has redeemed us in Christ, the, the God who who prescribes, you know, these different offerings in Leviticus, that's our God who knows us by name. And, and you know, this is nothing new for him, you know, and, and these things, they were just, yeah, they were on that side of the cross, we're on this side of the cross, but yet it's it's still the same God, and it's still the same God at work, and God's people are still benefiting from, uh, you know, what he does and establishes among us. Yeah, now talk to us a little bit more specifically about the context of, of chapter 2. Again, it's only the second chapter, but in terms of the, the layout of, of Leviticus, we've looked at the, the whole burnt offering yesterday. How does chapter 2 fit into that larger context? Sure. Um, jumping back to the first two verses of chapter 1, it kind of sets the stage for this whole section, because we kind of do see um, a fair amount of a, of a section that uh, Leviticus 2 fits into from... 1 1 to 317 these are these kind of these voluntary um or god-pleasing offerings um which will then in uh, uh chapter four then we'll pick up with offerings relating to atonement so two kind of situates then right after the beginning of all this when god starts laying this out but in the first two verses of chapter one um we hear the the lord called moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying speak to the people of israel and say to them when any of one of you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So they, you know, starting off with that. But the point being that God is speaking. God is, you know, doing this at work. So these these offerings are connected to one another. Um, there was even kind of, you know, an orderness to them, what would be placed on the altar first. But um, there's, so it's God addressing his people. He's speaking through Moses. 
And then there's two parts kind of in these, these first seven chapters. Then there, we have these grain offerings in chapter two. We also hear about grain offering in chapter six. In mm. chapter two, we kind of see this teaching the people about what these grain offerings are, what they teach them about who they are in this and what uh, the benefit is. And then in six, there's almost kind of like a responsibility for the priest as they now carry out these offerings as well. So it's, there's a didactic sense that we see or a teaching sense in chapter two. We'll see kind of then almost like a kind of like a case law type understanding or ritual case law. I think Kleinick refers it to. And I think he, he kind of has um, a point to that when kind of that structure of when this, then if that, you know, those kind of things. And then later than instructions to the priest. But there's, so that's kind of where we, we kind of pick up then after these burnt offerings and then before the peace offering. These grain offerings fit into that in chapter two. And then, so that ordering then that, that God will lay out, that he's laid out already in chapter one of there's meat from the burnt offering set out on the altar. Then we have the flour from the grain offering. And then after that, the fat from the peace offering. But they all do kind of connect of this fundamental of a whole burnt offering. That idea though, as even as we think of sacrifice and, you know, and, and offering, um, you know, with, with livestock, you know, at going back to Eden too, at the end of that, right, with the first sacrifice of clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins, there's sacrifice has death associated with it. So even in, as we think about grain offerings or these things like along those lines that seem less bloody and they are less bloody, there's still this understanding of who they are as a sinful people and God who is holy and righteous, but yet he is the one who these things are pleasing to him, not for the sake to earn their forgiveness, but yet because they are his people and they're giving him thanks. All right, so with that context in mind, let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 2. Moses writes, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons, it is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, 
You shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. That's our text for today. That is Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Andy Wright, it seems that we're reading like a, a cookbook sometimes in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> there's these, I mean, there's a lot of details that are very practical. And on yeah. the one hand, I, I mean, I suppose we could see that as overbearing. I think the better way is to see, look how God lays out every detail that you could want to know. Here's how you handle it. And that's part of the gracious nature of, of the book of Leviticus. So there's a lot here that, that we can talk about, all kinds of details. We're, we'll try to keep a balance between the big picture and, and some of the details. Uh, help us just get a, a bearing on this chapter. Take us in, in one direction. Sure. Yeah. I, I like that imagery of a cookbook, but I, I think that it's a testament to, to the fact, I mean, God really gave these commands and the people were to really do these things. Like if you or I were to make up something like with an offering, would we go to that link to say, mix it with this, but don't mix it with that? No, I'm too right. lazy to do that. Right? No, God actually said to do this. I mean, so I think that's kind of just uh, maybe a, a sounds, you know, um, little, but I think is, is something that's kind of worthwhile, at least mentioning. So um, I, I'm a very kind of systematics guy. That's what I, I really enjoy. So I kind of like looking at this kind of from a, a, a big picture and kind of start narrowing it down. And when we kind of just break this down, I think it starts to make uh, a little bit more sense. So looking at these regulations, then we, we kind of ask some important questions. Okay, who's God speaking to? We know that God is speaking. We know that Moses is you know, his instrument that he's using to speak this to his people. Who is this addressed to? Well, he's addressing this to his people. This is addressed to the people of God um, to for these offerings. And there is a, a sense that they're kind of anticipating too when they will have the land that they'll till and they'll have a portion, you know, that they can give right. to these things. So that that's kind of, a, I think, not an insignificant thing in that as well. But mm. um, uh, so then if God is speaking to his people then, who are the people involved with this? Uh, well, really, there's kind of three in a sense of there's the people, there's the priest, and there's God himself. Because after all, this is an offering to God, right? But the first group of people that God is talking to is um, just your, your, your everyday run-of-the-mill people. They're families. This is an offering of a family in a sense. Most of this stuff that's being done is stuff that's done in, in your home. Um, and, uh, you know, Kleining in his commentary too shows us that there's this link between the agriculture of Israel to the worship life of God's people. You know, I, I used to serve in Iowa and where agriculture is everywhere. And I'll, and I'm always the first to say, I know nothing about agriculture. I, <laughs> although being there for 10 years, I, I, uh, I know more than I started off with, but, That's good. but, um, but it kind of gets to the, the point too, that. We think about God who was our creator, and we think about God gives, uh, gave Adam to tend to the things of this earth, and how um, God, you know, who dwells among his people here, we think about then, you know, in the sanctuary, or we think about even still in our, our lives, that God has his people who he has created to use his creation that he has created and return back to him what he has given. So it's very creative and knowing, acknowledging who the creator is in this but there's a family 
in a sense. Like th these things were done as a family unit, like making olive oil, making grain, all of these things. This is God's people as a family bringing this offering to him. Um, and then, so the next group, the priest, they're the ones who officiated then at this offering. And there is a distinguish, um, distinguishes them just from the public, right? The priests have been set aside, uh, you know, the, the tribes of Levi and, and all of these things. These priests have a special place in Israel. It's, um, you can see some connections here and throughout the book. And, you know, as you go through Leviticus as well, with the office of the minister in a sense, we do have to be a little careful because there's not a one-to-one -one correlation. There is a difference. However, this understanding of, you know, being set apart for a service to God, and kind of when that comes back to then when we'll see like what what is the priest have um, you know access to the bread and things like that, but that God then um, even in the worship life of His people, there's different roles. So who is more important in this? Are are the families and the peoples who who are making these offerings, or the priests who are offering it? Yeah, hmm. they're both important. Yeah, <laughs> just like you know, I I just had an adult confirmation a couple of Sundays ago. And one of the things when we were talking about the office of the ministry or going through the table of duties, for instance, in the small catechism, I would say, who's more important, the pastors or the hearers? Yeah, right? right. Those things. There's different roles, but um, there's one is not more important than another. Yeah. Because we always want to think if there's distinction, then somehow one is better than another. No, it's not. So the people are involved in this offering. The priests are involved in this offering. They both benefit in this offering. Um, and then, uh, you know, so the people, you know, benefit as well, as we heard about this fragrant offering to him, that God delights in it, but then the priest, you know, get some of the leftover flour and bread, but then God, then in, in this whole picture, these are his people and he shows delight in it. Hmm. So God delights in this offering here, are his people here, are his priest, this is what they're offering to him. And he delights in that. Yeah. And that's a that's kind of a kind of in the broad sense of what we see as we then you know start narrowing down into the details. But. Sure, and I, I think it's it's really important to keep those those three actors in mind that it's not only the people and the priests that that's very obvious throughout the book of Leviticus what the people are doing, what the priests are doing, but to keep in mind that God is also the one at work throughout it all. He's the one who's speaking. He's the one who makes these things pleasing to himself because they're what he's given. That's a, a really key detail. And, and what you were saying about the, the matter of distinctions, and we, we tend to think that if there's a distinction, then that means one is more important than another. That's maybe something we want to keep in mind as we think about the various types of offerings and what can be offered here. We talked a little bit about this yesterday when it came to the burnt offering, whether you offered something from the herd or the flock or a bird— it wasn't that one was a better offering than another. It was just these were the options that God gave, usually had to do with how rich or poor you were, and God gives all of them as options. He wants all of his people to be gathered together, to be in his presence. Maybe something similar is happening here with the various types of bread and the ways that you can cook it here. Whatever you have as the ability to do it, God wants you to be able to participate in this worship life to bring you into his presence as one of his holy people. So a lot of similarities, key details that we want to keep in mind, overarching themes from this book of Leviticus. So with some of those things in mind then, Pastor Wright, take us into the, the various materials that can be offered in this chapter. Yeah, and in the various materials, we kind of get uh, a few different things. Um, we, we hear about grain produced by families. Um, 
So in uh, chapter, or excuse me, verse 12 of chapter two, it talks about um, kind of this first ripened, um, uh, kind of the first first fruits or the first ripened ears of barley. I mean, there's different ways you can translate some of that. Um, verse 14 talks about the first processed grain. So if you offer grain offering of the first fruits of the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. So that's um, that's that processed grain. Um, later in twenty chapter 27, there'll be a tithe of their har harvest. You know, it talks about that kind of even included in some of these offerings with the grain offerings. Um, and then um, then you t in verses 4 to 10, it talks about sifted wheat. Uh, and verses 14 to 16, he talks about cooked flour. And then there's three different kinds of bread then when we talk about some of this too. Like in verses 4 to 7, there's loaves or wafers baked in an oven. There's flat cakes baked on kind of a flat pan or, or there's round cakes fried in a pan. Or, you know, we heard griddle, I think the ESV uses, you know, so that's yeah. where... And it sounds like that, you know, he doesn't say, you know, you cook it two minutes on one side and then flip it over and, you know, those things. But there's different methods, you know, that they, they have for cooking some of that stuff in the, the, in the material. So that's kind of from the kind of the grain, the sifted wheat, the cooked flour, or we think about then bread with that cooked flour. And then right. some other materials then that he singles out um, in verse six and in verse 15, which is an essential oil or, or excuse me, essential ingredient, not essential oil. Essential <laughs> olive oil. If boy, this had a, they, they were going around trying to have essential oil business, right? <laughs> that's right. No. Yeah. Oh goodness. Olive um, oil is the first essential right. oil in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yes, olive oil, which is an essential ingredient. There we go. Words finally fail us at times. Um, so he, he talks about olive oil and that frankincense um, with the the fine wheat flour in verses one to two that gets mixed with that you know, with this burning. Also frankincense with the coarse barley flour in verses 15 to 16. So frankincense was kind of an ordinary form of incense. And then we also have like um, in Exodus 30, there's that incense burnt daily by the priest on the incense altar in the holy, in, in the holy place. So that, that doesn't um, talk about frankincense necessarily in that regard. Um, but uh, the, this frankincense though was not required for the offerings of baked bread. But it, and it it then became associated with with grain offering, hmm. and then the last thing um, that uh, was required or an important material was salt, and this is something that it had to be in every single one of the grain offerings. Verse thirteen says, "You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt." Um, so th they're kind of. Um, practical and symbolic reasons that uh, we can kind of see and look into that. I mean, first and foremost, salt is going to help preserve things. You know, I mean, even you think about, uh, you know, God warned them um, when he sent the manna from heaven, right? Don't leave it any over, mm -hmm. uh, but take your days allotted portion. And what happened when they did do that? The bread worms and stank, you know, right. um, people always like that reading in the church, right? It stank, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it spoils. So um, that there's a practical, it's a preservative. There's also then kind of this, we see this symbolic or kind of a, another layer of this that's it's associated with permanence or permanence, excuse me, permanence. Um, and I, I always, when I hear this then too, I mean, you think about like Jesus then uh, talks about 
us being salt of the earth or, you know, if salt has lost its saltiness, you know, we think of that, that preservation in that. We think about the permanence in that. We think about the purifyingness of that, kind of all of those things. But salt was something then too that also kind of was connected with covenants um, in, in the Old Testament as well. But salt was something that God said in all of these offerings, you have to have salt with that. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad you you mentioned that connection to the New Testament and what Jesus says about the salt of the earth, because this is, you know, Leviticus 2 is is maybe not the best-known chapter of the Old Testament, but it does sometimes come up in connection with what Jesus says in Matthew 5 about being the salt of the earth. And, and the other thing, and this is a bit of a tangent, so don't feel like you have to say too much, but I'm curious on the matter of frankincense. I think when many Christians hear frankincense today, they think of one of the gifts of the Magi, it, do you think there's any connection between the the use of frankincense in Leviticus two, and the fact that it's frankincense, one of the gifts of the Magi? Again, I know it's kind of a little bit of a tangent, but I'm I'm curious. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, we often then you know kind of will, will use that as frankincense, then being kind of a sign of Jesus's priestly office. Mm. You know, um, the grain offerings, though, I think in a sense of like the connection with the Magi of just this you know, grain offerings were such a common thing and frankincense being offered to that and being pleasing to God. There isn't a sense that we think of Jesus and that connection of him being offered up to God and that pleasing aroma. Um, one of the church fathers was at Cyprian talked about Jesus being like baked in the oven of God's wrath, I think with bread mm. uh, or as bread, you know, the bread of life. I, I think it was Cyprian. I, I'm not yeah. too much of an early church guy, but you can, one of the viewers can or listeners can correct me on that. But um, so, I mean, in, in that regard, I think, you know, so, I mean, is it, it is kind of a tangent, but I, I think it's, it's not unrelated, but uh, I don't yeah. know. But, but the, this idea though, of frankincense, I mean, here at St. John's, we're probably, you know, we're just one of a handful of congregations. We on a regular basis do burn incense at mm -hmm. some of our services. And um, this, uh, this, that smell, you know, that you have that, there, there is this connection too with these that it takes it from the ordinary, as we'll see in some of this, and then kind of moves it into, kind of elevates it into kind of the heavenly or even, you know, that um, like think about let my prayers rise before you as incense, yeah. you know, that that idea that this elevation of setting things apart, um, that that frankincense is associated with, uh, as those as well that this this grain offering then is not just sitting here but we are. You know, it's being offered up to God, even as incense burns and, and goes up yeah. and is ple in a pleasing aroma to God. Yeah, and that, that matter of the smoke rising, we talked about the central nature of that in the previous text, and that same idea of the, the smoke, the incense rising now, is going to continue to occupy a, a central role in, in these offerings as well. We're going to keep looking at Leviticus chapter 2, more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Andy Wright this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 29th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Andy Wright. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we were talking about the various things that God says to include with the grain offerings, but he also makes the point that there are some things you shouldn't include with the grain offerings. What does he what does he talk about there? Yeah, God says in um Leviticus chapter 2 here that there, there's kind of um two substances primarily which that were common things that were to not be a part of this offering the first is leaven i mean we hear that that whole leaven unleaven i mean that's throughout the old testament it's through the new testament this idea of of leavening bread or having unleavened bread is that's is, you could go you could probably do you know you know a year and a half's worth of sharper iron episodes just on that alone and uh, even jesus uses that image so kind of a, a practical thing with leaven that it was to be excluded from it, the bread would last longer and is less subject to mold and decay, right? If you have unleavened bread, it lasts longer. Um, I mean, you can see this in, you know, in just instances, you know, around your home or even just whatever. Um, and then kind of a symbolic thing that leaven was often associated with corruption. It was associated with sickness. It was associated with decay. It was associated with death. I mean, some of that tied into with the practicality then, too, when you think, see things decay and mold and, and those things as well, but it spreads as well. I mean, leaven, like those things spread, uh, you know, disease, sickness, those things, it, it's it was spread over all of us. Um, and, but those things then were all in clean things, too, corruption, sickness, death, and those are incompatible with God's holiness. So if you're offering something up to God, um, and this kind of gets into a little bit of the bigger discussion, too, that I'm sure you, you know, um, maybe have talked about it, or at least it comes up time and time again of the different kind of categories of like clean, um, unclean, you know, or um, holy. I mean, th- different things of, of something being set apart for a holy use and then treating it as such, which it, once it has been set apart. And that's something that we, we see even in how God, uh, the priests were to treat then the bread that was offered and burned up to God. Um, so, uh, anywho, so then the, the next thing that is not to be used is like honey, um, or even some translations will have fruit syrup or, you know, something along those lines, uh, that it, like leavened dough, it was subject to fermentation. You let that sit, it'll ferment, you know, over time, um, some parts of it, but it also, you know, is like, um, it can be subject to, you know, the, the decay and things like that as well. But it could be offered, though, um, however, as kind of the uh, in Numbers 15, Second Chronicles 31, Nehemiah 10, it could be offered as kind of the first processed agricultural produce in the form of a dough or like honey and cakes made from this first processed grain. Like sometimes they'll talk about that later, but not specifically this, this offering here in um, Leviticus. So there's kind of different grain offerings that we see in different categories of grain offerings, but here in these purposes and two, 
there not to have that honey or fruit syrup or, or what, you know, however you want to nuance that, those words there. But, um, but yeah. 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 Yep. And, and you, you and I were talking a little bit about this during the break that the why, I mean, especially with 11, you, you can see the, the why I think, or you can guess as to the why, but sometimes the, the why of God says, offer this, but not that, or this is clean, but this is not clean isn't so much that something we discern, but it's the fact this is what God has determined, this is what he said, and so regardless of whether or not we see the reason why, we stick with what he says and follow that, and sometimes I think that may be part of the point. I don't know if it is here, but I think it's it's true, at least in other places in Leviticus. Yeah, that that's a—I mean, right. I, I mean, and it, it kind of goes back to, you know, this is God saying these things. God is speaking to them. The Lord himself is saying it, and if he says it, you follow it. And, um, you know, you, you would some, it's not, you don't hear it as much anymore, but sometimes people used to say, you know, God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. But right. The, the correct way is always God's word says it, that settles it. I believe it, you know, and that we there, even at, it's just, it's base level of if God says, this is how you were to do it. Even if we don't understand it, our faith submits itself to the word of God and says, that is what, that's what I want. You know, that's what I'll, what I'll do. So you might be scratching your head at times and some of these offerings going, what in the world? What was the purpose of that? I don't know, but God said it. So that's what yeah, it is. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So with these, with these various ingredients that we're talking about, I mean, most of the things are, are pretty ordinary things that people have. Again, not all that different than what we talked about in chapter one. If you've got a, a herd, bring a bull. If you've got a flock, you can bring a ram. If you've got, you know, if all you can afford is just the the doves, then bring that. Similar here, God's making use of, of everyday things to include his people, to make them ready to receive him and his holiness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's using stuff. He, he's not saying, go up on some secluded mountain, find this, you know, flower that, you know, that only two of them exist in the world. And then, you know, those things like, no, right? God is saying, hey, you're, you're my people. This is where, where you, who you are. This is what I've given to you that's around you, and this is what you are going to to offer. It's these everyday things that God has them use. Gee, it's almost kind of like everyday things like we have around us, like water and bread, wine. Right. How about that? You know, it's almost like God is the same God here. Um, yeah. Now we have we have different things, you know, that different promises attached to those. But the point being, right? God God uses His creation and attaches His word to it. And that's that's how he operates time and again. So what he does is then takes what's normally these ordinary grains, these ordinary things of bread, these ordinary things, but they get set aside for a holy use. They get set aside um, as a fragrant offering to God that is as pleasing in his sight and that he delights in. And that is good and it's right. Or even just think about our lives too. Look at how we have ordinary things in our life. Like how ordinary is it a, a mother, you know, changing the diaper of her baby, but yet that's pleasing in the sight of God, not to benefit, not to earn her salvation. Nobody's saying that, but, but God delights in that. God delights in his people actually, you know, living out who he's called them to be, you know, and, and just as he delighted in them taking this bread and not putting honey or fruit syrup in it and burning it on the altar, he delighted in that because they're his people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now talk to us about the the where of this sacrifice, this grain offering. Yesterday, we heard everything happening around the altar that's there in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Talk to us about the where of the grain offering. Sure. Yeah. It, it's. I mean, it piggybacks off of that same discussion um, yesterday. We're kind of talking about similar location here with this. Um, but we, we see then kind of though this this movement though too, going back to even kind of who are the players in this or who's the actors in this, right? It's starting off at home, then it's being brought to the priests. They're offering on that they're offering that on the altar, putting that on the altar, burning it on that altar. And then um and they, it, this is in uh verse two and verse nine, uh, where we see this happening and and uh, you know, just like we saw in verse one, or excuse me, chapter one with the the burnt offering. But then so then the that's that location. So from the home to the courtyard, you know, to the altar, and and then to then God himself. You know, so that's kind of another location as we think of that uh God received then this offering as a gift to him. And then it's it's his property, it's it's holy, it could not be removed from its location. Um I mentioned towards the beginning, chapter six has kind of then some of the the things for priests of how they are to deal with it then too. So after this has been taken, uh, this has been brought and this offering has been made, and chapter six, it talks about then they are to eat it there, right? This isn't a to-go order for them, for the priest. You know, that this is a dine-in thing, you know, that they, that because it has this holy use, that they are to be, to be, um, eat, eat those things there in that place, in that location, yeah, that's right. Okay, and we'll talk more about that, I think, as, as we get a lot farther in, because that is something that's different in Chapter 2 than what we saw in Chapter 1. In Chapter 1, those offerings were burnt up in their entirety, and the smoke went up before God. Here, part of it is burnt, but part of it is received by the priest as holy food, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. What about the the win of this offering? It, it doesn't really, at least as far as I can see, it doesn't specify that you do this at a certain time, when might this offering have been given by the people? That's a good question. So I, I was kind of looking up, you know, kind of some of these things just because, I mean, my my knowledge of, I'm as a pastor, I'm not using Leviticus and green offerings on a, on a daily basis. Um, what, but it's it's always fun to kind of just look at. So from just kind of from what I can surmise of just looking up some things and consulting Kleinig's commentary again, he talks about that, uh, he makes this statement that like the private uh, um the the private grain offerings were normally brought to the sanctuary at one of the three pilgrim festivals. So we think of then the pilgrim festivals, the Feast of Weeks, um, kind of late in spring of Pentecost, marked at the end of the grain harvest. We think about the Feast of Booths in late summer, marked at the end of the agricultural year. The Feast of Weeks looks likely when the first processed grain was offered. So there was different points kind of, but but what's the point in that then too? It connected with the agricultural year. It connected with the agricultural life of God's people. Yeah. So they would bring these offerings as they're doing their work, as they're, um, you know, uh, they're ending their harvest, uh, they're ending their year when they're first processing these things. You know, you're, they're bringing these things in, they're making this stuff. And then now as a part of that, then that's connected then with them offering it to God. And, and I think that's something that we learn from as well is that um, it's easy for us in our minds to segment like our work week from church, right? Or it's easy for us yeah. to separate the the week or the year from the church year. But here these things were intertwined with one another that, okay, 
we're, we're harvesting grain. We make this, it's time to make a sacrifice to God, an offering of thanksgiving to God, right? Um, or, but, uh, but we, it's, it teaches us about how we are to view, you know, like, um, we're in the process of starting a, a classical Lutheran school here at St. John's. And so we're, we've been kind of talking about intentionally with chapel every day of kind of teaching families, teaching fathers, especially too, how to live in the liturgical week mm. of, you know, going from Sunday to Sunday. What does it mean that we're in whatever Sunday after Trinity, or what does it mean that this is the week of, you know, uh, the first Sunday in Lent or something like that. And how does that shape even uh, our devotions at home? How does that shape what God's word is, is around us? And I, this is where, you know, well, look at these people then here in Leviticus too. They were, their agricultural life was connected with God's uh, command to offer the sacrifice. So it just, those went hand in hand. Oh, time to harvest, time to offer, time to, you know, I mean, all those things like that. Yeah. Okay. So there's the the time. What about now the actual process of the the sacrifice, the offering? How did what's described here? What are those details? Yeah. It's so it's there. There is this understanding that it was just this private grain offering, kind of as we think of kind of more of a family thing, was distinguished from the grain offering um, regularly combined with the public burn offering in Exodus 29 and the personal peace offering in Leviticus 7. So we're kind of as we're talking about these offerings here in 1, 2, and 3 of, of Leviticus, there are some kind of distinctions between, because there's different burn offerings, there's different grain offerings, and that kind of stuff, and different actions associated with that. But this procedure then for offering kind of the fine wheat flour, um, there's kind of five acts performed in that. The first three, though, were performed by the giver of the offering, right? Going back to that very foundational thing of this is done in the home. This is the family that's doing this, that they're bringing it to God. Um, the, so the person poured oil into the flour, placed some incense on it, and then presented it to a priest at the sanctuary. And then uh, then the last two acts then were performed by the, the priest who was officiating at it. He removed a handful of flour mixed together. Um, with all the incense for the offering, he burnt it on the altar. And then the same ritual was also followed for the coarse grain offerings in, in verses 15 to 16. And then that same basic procedure in both cases for like fine wheat flour and the bread offering. Um, but there was no frankincense then, as we talked about earlier, added to the bread offering. So um, there, there's kind of that act, um, kind of just kind of as we think about that, you know, how that's transpiring and God is telling us, you know, in these verses what to do. But the, so then there's there's kind of a, a transactional or, or kind of a you know a exchanging of things that happens as well. So you have the Israelite making these things. You have this the Israelite or the the person coming and presenting then this offering to the priest, and then the priest handing it over to the Lord by burning a portion to it. So the people handing it over to the priest, the priest handing it over to the Lord. In some ways, then that, that kind of parallels too. Even as Leviticus started off, here's God handing over to Moses, who hands over to the people this word. Yeah, yeah. But now, as we mentioned earlier, part of this offering is not burned. Part of it goes to the priests, which serves the practical function of of feeding the priests, at least in part. Uh, talk about that aspect of of this offering. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so the priest they can. So even after this has been designated as kind of holy food, right? That this is something that, or this offering now no longer, it is this portion has been set apart, you know, for a holy use. 
that has been burned, we, we see what's left over is something though that it has still been used for, you know, this holy thing. So it's not given back to the family. It's not then thrown to the dogs for them to eat, but the priests are to eat it. The priests are then to eat it there, as I mentioned before in chapter six, it talks about eat it in that place. Um, and it really teaches them, you know, it, it's kind of a, it teaches about, you know, this idea of what has been set apart for God, but also then too that, I mean, the priests benefited in this offering too. You know, even as the people benefited that this, their, their offering was a delight, you know, before God, the priest there, they had a physical benefit from it. They could eat, they could eat this bread. They could eat this, this grain, you know, that God had provided for them through his people. So even as the priest was providing a service to the people, as he served, you know, in his position to offer this to God, even the people then served the priest in a sense of God using the people then to provide food for the priest. So it's, yeah. I mean, you really see this all fit together kind of in this divine economy kind of, you know, with, with this offering and uh, God providing for that. But yeah, they, they, they could eat um, in the holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting that, that they could do that. Yeah, just that practical nature of it and the way that God used this to take care of those physical needs of his priests, I think starts to take us into more of the theological conversation about this, that as as opposed to, say, the pagans, in which the people were making sacrifices, doing these ritual acts of worship somehow to please the gods, here the one true God is actually using the worship that he gives to his people for the sake of providing for his people. So take us into some of the theology of these of this chapter the theology yeah it's it's just great i mean you know it's uh so many you know even as you were just saying that night i was reading this you know earlier and last week some of this text but even as you were just speaking about that more bible stories were coming to my mind as you're talking about this i was just thinking of you know elijah and the prophets of baal you know is, is your god going to the bathroom i mean that's kind of the pg version of what he says <laughs> you know but like those things like that here's god then right let's take this like here's this very practical thing that the priest themselves gets to eat. Does God need to eat? No. Does God need this? Is he hungry? No. He doesn't need that, but yet he does this and instituted it. Why? To benefit his people, to benefit his priest. I mean, who is a God like that that does that? You know, the scriptures teach us, well, there isn't any God like that because this is the one true God. All the other gods are just false, man-made gods. God didn't need this, but God wanted it to teach his people and for them to be benefited. Um, God's priests benefit and eat this offering. Um, God's people benefited as they returned a portion to the Lord, you know, that they they gave him thanks. You know, it is it is right to give him thanks and praise, or or it is even to, you know, our duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him, as we think about, you know, in the um in in the catechism and the explanation to the first article of the creed. He does it and and we and we give him thanks in return. So that there's kind of that theological function then that we start to see on play, just teaching us more about God and his mercy, God and his grace, but also God who speaks and teaches us even through these actions and through these offerings and God's people benefit from it because he doesn't need these things. He doesn't, but, but it's, it's for his people's sake that he does it. Yeah. And we, we see in this section, the same phrase that we saw in the previous chapter, that this will be then a food offering or an offering by fire with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, you know, that pleasing aroma to the Lord, what makes it pleasing is that he is the one who has provided it for his people to be given so that then they become, you know, pleasing in his sight. 
again, that the direction of these sacrifices, this is God giving to his people. And that, that phrase, pleasing aroma, is another aspect of that theology that we see in chapter two again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this this pleasing aroma, um, as we think about, yeah, just um and just so much comes to mind, you know, as we think about, you know, even too, like, I mean, you think about it, we're both dads, right? And you're just the the, the things that your kids give you, right? I mean, right. it's it it means so much. Like they give you this. I have this little bookmark that my daughter made. You know, it says me as a pastor, and it's you know just a little squiggly thing. But you know, it's pleasing to me, right? My daughter gave it to me, right? Um, would she ever become a professional artist with it? No, she wouldn't. But <laughs> although with modern art nowadays, who knows? But the point <laughs> being, right? You know, she did this, and, and and because she is my daughter, that's what is pleasing to me, because these are God's people. And he has made them his people. He has called them his people. That is what is pleasing to him. And that sweet aroma then is not because, oh, look at how great your sacrifice is. The sacrifice is, this is the sacrifice of Thanksgiving of my people. And that's yeah. what it, why it is a sweet aroma. Yeah, yeah. So we got about six minutes here, Pastor Wright. Let's, let's make some connections now to Christ. In the midst of, of grain offerings, bread offerings, how do we see Christ in Leviticus chapter 2? Sure, yeah. Um, I remember um, my theological interview um, before I uh, was certified for placement. Um, Dr. David Scare popped his head in. He wasn't one of my theological interviewers, and I got really scared. I was like, "Oh, great!" And uh, <laughs> but he, but he asked me. He said, "What part of the Old Testament is about Jesus?" And I said, "All of it." He said, "You're right. You pass." So, um, <laughs> so even in Leviticus, nice. we we see connections with Jesus, right? I mean, God is in and the Christ is in the Old Testament, but we also see connections with Him. I mean, we think about even just from the, the the just the simple standpoint that Jesus ate and drank with his disciples. You know, so we've been talking a lot about God's people and taking these everyday things. But not only did God, you know, create those things, but God is the one who came down and walked on this earth and ate bread with his people. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's mind blowing. But yet that's the Lord who did it. He's also the Lord then who broke bread with them, provided food for them. And even then, as he is, then he institutes a feast where he is also the priest, you know, the one who offers then up himself as the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God on the cross. And we have those benefits that he has given to us. Um, but there is this, um, you know, this connection as we think about the work of Jesus among his people, as we think about him as the bread of life, as we think about him as the sacrifice, that for our atonement in that sense but that he gives us, you know, that this meal and we give him thanks in our lives as well. Uh, but I mean, so there's, there's uh, some corollaries then, or kind of things that would later then come, come up, you know, in the, the history of the church, we think about people bringing offerings forward and thanksgiving to God. We think about um, these offerings, even in the church today, how God's people use it. Like e even something as a monetary offering, let's use that example for it. Like that God's people benefit from it. And the pastors benefit from it too. It's it's not it's it's good for the the men who preach the gospel to earn a living from the gospel, right? You and I both have families, and we are compensated for our work as a pastor. That's not why we do it, but but you know we benefit from that as well because God is providing for us, even as He's providing for His people, and, they, and when we return to Him, what He gives us thanks. Um, I mean, Paul brings that up in First Corinthians nine thirteen to fourteen about. You know, this uh, he talks about the priest receiving the bread and they and then he talks about then as as those who preach the gospel. 
So God's people receive his benefits. That's what, even as God acts, and all of this is about God, God does it for the benefit of his people. God's people receive his benefits, and they give him thanks for what he has done in Christ. They give him thanks for what he continues to do in Christ. They give him thanks for what he will do even on that final day when he raises us up. And we see him, and we feast at that eternal wedding feast that knows no end. I mean, all of that we, we see really, even as this, these grain offerings point us to the Christ who would come, the Christ who has come, and Christ who says he comes again in glory. Yeah, I mean, just all of this, I think, very much helps us to understand why we worship the way we worship, and even just the direction of, of worship. It's, it's so easy for us to think that when we go to worship, it's all about us doing something for God. But just as we're seeing already in the book of Leviticus that, that the Lord gives this worship so that he can give to his people, the same is true for us. And even as we you know, bring those offerings still today in church, the monetary offerings, God turns those right back around and, and gives through those. And so I mean, we, we constantly see God as, as the giver. That's the way we should approach Christian worship still today. It's, it's such a, a wonderful reinforcement of those things. About two minutes here to wrap things up, Pastor Wright. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so as you kind of go go forward in the study of Leviticus, always keep that in mind, right? God is the giver. God is the one who bestows. God is the one who gives. And that's where it's no different than us, you know, who we are today. And, and you know, so as we, and, and as you said, it gives new meaning to, to, or it gives, reinforces, I guess, maybe it's a better way of saying, why we even worship the way that we do, um, even things that are not commanded by God necessarily, but like certain rituals that we have or ways that we do things, it teaches us about a reverence, who we are as God's people towards God. It teaches us, you know, about what he does for us. It centers it um, and fixes our eyes on the crucified Lord, who we who are sinners, you know, and, and bring these things, nothing but our sin to him. He's the one who graciously hears and answers us and gives us um, forgiveness, life, and salvation through his means of grace as he feeds us, his people, his royal priesthood now, you know, here from his his altar, um, the Lord continues to feed his people. Pastor Andy Wright serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. He has been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus chapter 2, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.